we've been in uh, Matthew. We've made our way, obviously, to 28. And we've made our way through the first 10 verses. But for context, let's read them. My goal today is really just to pick up verses 11 through 15, because really you have a deal with how do you deal with a living Jesus. So read along with me, if you would, though, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll read verses 11 through 15 as well. So uh, it says this. Now, after the Sabbath... As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and he said to the woman or women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran and bring the disciples to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Now when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night, and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Will you pray with me, please? God, we want to give you every minute of this. Every second, Lord, every breath we take, may it be completely saturated with you. I pray, God, you would immerse me and come upon me, that, God, you would use me as your vessel to speak to each of us. God, we come here in various states of repair and disrepair. We come here, God, trying to figure out life. In some cases, there's some feeling like we've really got it all figured out. But, God, you know how to speak fluent us. You know, Lord, how to speak not just a word into our ear, but into our hearts and our minds. And we need that today. We've come more than just to sing. We've come today, Lord, to fellowship with you and to sit at your feet. And there, God, to be instructed and challenged and encouraged and equipped for every good work. So, God, bring everything you intend your word to do today. That includes, God, bringing salvation to those who have yet to figure you out. That includes bringing encouragement to the discouraged and strength to the weak and hope to the hopeless and frustrated. And today, Lord, I pray you would revolutionize every one of us. Lord, I pray you would minister now. God, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. And may we be captivated in your word and may we have so much fun in it now. May your black and white come alive for us and may we live in it for the moment, I pray. And walk out of here not just knowing it better, but knowing you better. So I commit this to you, Lord, and just pray you would now come and dear every moment. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because they call me pastor or whatever that what I'm going to tell you is the truth. Search that beautiful book you've been given and study the scriptures so that you could always have something for which then to hold all things to be true or false. There's the cool part. It's a checks and balance system for every guy waving his coat or driving his Bentley or whatever the case is. Uh, and God has all kinds of verses for those things. Anyway, so with that in mind, here's where we start this whole thing. Now, there is a problem, and the problem is God is comparing two different camps. If you think about it, in one camp, we have a group of gals who have made their way to the tomb. They have carried with them, you know, ointment. Now, this is a classic thing. Within Jewish tradition, you're allowed seven days to anoint a body to give it a proper burial, to honor it. In other words, to have it buried with dignity. Now, the rich man who was one of the council leaders, his name is Joseph of Arimathea, who, by the way, had trusted in Jesus but was doing so privately because, well, he would have been fired and then some for it. And one of the other council members, his name is Nicodemus. These two guys had come after Jesus had been crucified, and they had come and they had asked to anoint Jesus. They had, in other words, they were seeking to give him a proper burial, and they take him from this cross that was on a, a hill that looks just like a skull. We could go to Israel, by the way. You know, we used to go all the time. Uh, prayerfully, we'll do that soon. And you can see a hill that looks just like a skull. And somewhere on that, uh, you know, uh, our Savior is crucified. And next to it is a garden. Now, in that garden, there's a tomb that no one had laid before. Somebody was carving out there. Obviously, a wealthy man. Gardens don't come cheap. And there, this Joseph of Arimathea from a wealthy family then chooses then to forfeit his tomb to this Savior that he had chosen to follow. Now, he doesn't know that actually Jesus is only borrowing it for the weekend because he's going to rise and not need it anymore. I mean, Joseph doesn't know that. He's just giving him his tomb. So Joseph goes, and then he takes Jesus, and he sort of, in essence, and exits the same way that Jesus sort of entered, as a baby, where he was wrapped in swaddling linen uh, there and laid in a, in a in, if you think about it, in a kind of a profane place, a manger. Now Jesus is wrapped in linen again, and he's covered in this aloe and myrrh mixture. Now, it doesn't take a brilliant person to figure out what could happen when you have linen strips and you cover them in aloe, and then you kind of let them cool in a garden for three days. You know, what's going to happen is it's going to turn into a body cast. So what you have then, if you think about it, in essence, it's sort of like a cocoon. Now, there's a cocoon that would have been there basically from the ankles to the neck. Jesus would have been wrapped from that. And then, you know, feet are optional. And then with that, ultimately, there's something that kind of covers his head. Now, <clears throat> with that, Jesus is laid in this tomb. A very large stone is rolled away, or rolled into it, I'm sorry, to guard it. And then uh, as it's closed, because after all, a rotting body smells, uh, and then, of course, then there's the Sabbath, this really long day where no one's supposed to work. As a Jewish person, you couldn't go out more than 200 steady. There's so much you couldn't do on that day because you weren't supposed to work. So here we are doing nothing on the day of our greatest grief. But these women, they couldn't wait. From the very moment that it seemed even remotely possible for them not to break the law, they're there dragging their own version of it, their aloes, and they're, because they want to give Jesus a proper burial as well. And so they're bringing it up there, and on the way up, Mark tells us, they look at each other and they say, oh, we hadn't thought about this. Who's going to roll away the stone? Now, what they're unaware of are the other things that are taking place in the other camp. Because while this is taking place, there are a group of religious leaders who seem to be the only ones completely aware of the fact that Jesus said he was going to raise again on the third day. Though he had told his disciples on four occasions, we really just didn't hear it. 
So somewhere in that, they go and they go to Pilate. And they say to Pilate, hey, that deceiver said that he was going to raise in three days. So what would happen if the disciples break in, steal the body, and then after they steal the body, you know, obviously at a point like that, you know, then this whole thing is just going to erupt and we've got a huge mess on our hands. Let's get this thing shut down. And Pilate, we read, says, you have your guard. Not you have a guard, but you have your guard. Now that is important because it will play into our text here. Because what that means is Pilate, in essence, has done something that's really not necessarily very common for the Roman Empire. He has taken a guard, in essence, and he has then basically put them underneath the leadership of the religious leaders. They are then the religious leaders, uh, in other words, they're under the religious leaders' employ. And he says, go and make it as secure as you know how. In other words, as far as the religious leaders are concerned, he he gives them a complete carte blanche. He says, whatever money you need to spend, whatever you need to do, go and make sure that thing is foolproof. Now, if you were somebody that didn't want the disciples to do, to, you know, uh, to be stealing the body, now how exactly, how foolproof would you make it? Now, Roman guards are three-hour ships, four men at a time, and they're your Navy SEALs. They're the roughest, toughest guys. They're the guys that make people sweat when they just walk by them on the street and they smile. And, and these are the guys that are there. And as they are there guarding, and how goofy would this seem? Because it would seem like you're guarding a dead guy from a bunch of renegades up in the middle of nowhere Galilee. I mean, they're just a bunch of fishermen. They're really, they're kind of in in the mindset of a Jewish person. They're the uneducated batch. As a matter of fact, their language was so mispronounced. It was so uneducated that it was very common for them. They were actually not allowed to give a benediction at any of the 365 synagogues in Jerusalem, because they said they slaughtered the language so much it would be like blasphemy. And imagine somebody talking in such a way that they're like, no, we really can't have you reading the word because it's just going to sound too bad. Well, that was kind of the idea. So these religious leaders, mind you, by the way, this is now the Sabbath. And what that means is that though everybody else isn't allowed to work, well, the religious leaders are working. And they're there going, all right, we need a guard. All right, you guys, give me your best guys. Give me your toughest guys, because who knows what these fishermen are going to be like. And, you know, there's that Peter guy. You know about him. He's whacked off an ear when we arrested Jesus. So let's, let's go and let's get this thing handled. So they, you've got these guys, and they're just there, and they're scary, and they put, in essence, a perimeter around as a Roman seal would be done. Kind of like a police line. So there's a space out there where no one is allowed to cross, and then you have this giant stone, and then you have these religious, then you have these, these guards who, by the way, are, are basically, their whole responsibility is for three hours, they have to stay awake and not like, I mean, you're not looking behind you, right? There's a dead guy there, he's not going to get up. So you're looking in front of you, just waiting for the first movement to be able to go and kill something. That's your job. Now, could they possibly have imagined that the show was about to begin from behind them? So all of a sudden, what we read in our text prior, and that's why I wanted you to read the whole chapter, was that this angel descends. Now, if I were an angel and God were going to send me on a mission, this would be the mission I would want. Because God doesn't just say, you've got a message. By the way, angelos means messenger. You've got a message to give. But while you're at it, I need you to freak out out Roman soldiers. Now that would be fun. Now I don't know about you, but for me, that's kind of where I come from. So the idea is like, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking for somebody. Is there anyone here who would just like to make 
a bunch of Roman, tough Roman soldiers wet their trousers or their skirts, actually. You know, you know. And I'm like, me, 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 me. So imagine he's got to come down and he's like, and he's just going to roll away the stone and, you know. And imagine what these Roman soldiers—they've been—they've been trained to kill anything, but an angel really isn't kind of in the course. You know, you've never gotten that in your training. Okay, well, there's big guys and there's small guys and there's rebels and there's this and then there's like supernatural beings. You know, there's just there's just none of that. So they have no idea what to do. And they, it tells us they became like dead men. But the beautiful part, again, is right as it happens, it says, but the angel speaks to the women, which tells us the women seem to have actually seen this. So imagine they get there dragging this thing up. How are we going to get the stone away? And they look, and all of a sudden they see these guys, uh, uh, and they're falling over. And then the angel's like, uh, uh, oh, oh, don't be afraid, ladies. And I love that. That somewhere in all of this, the same guy that's like in his brightness and his reeking of purity and all of the power of heaven, now kind of turns the whole thing way down so he doesn't freak out the girls. He's like, ladies, don't, don't be afraid. And at this point, hey, he's not here. And the stone is rolled away. Now remember, the stone isn't rolled away to get Jesus out. We're going to see clearly that he can walk through walls by this point. Clearly a stone's not a problem. But it was to get the girls in. Because if the stone was still there and they're like, hey, Jesus isn't in there, knock and see if anyone answers. Well, of course that would be weird. So the stone needed to be rolled away enough so that they could go in and realize that there was nothing there. Well, it wasn't just that nothing was there. Isn't that true? There was the cocoon. And that makes it even weirder. What that means is we've got a body cast still in shape and nothing inside of it. You kind of, hello, and there's nothing in there. And that would be weirder because it's, if you're going to steal the body, why in the world would you, why would, why would you undress it like that? That's just weird. But even beyond that, how could you get it out without destroying the linen cloths? Now, we know that from the Gospel of John. When John comes in and Peter runs in there, they see those things and they see them in their order. That's a pretty radical thought. Now, with that, we have women now who are freaked out Because an angel, a supernatural being, told them, a messenger, in the simplest sense, told them, he is not here, he is alive. But do you really believe that? When you go out there and you tell people, Jesus did literally die, and he literally rose again, and he is alive now, how many people are quick to go, oh yeah, of course. Because there has to be more to it. And what Mark tells us is though when they had encountered that much information, they weren't actually, they were going to go, but they weren't going to tell anyone anything. Because after all, who wants to be thought of as that crazy? Especially since one of them was Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Imagine this girl comes back and she is now shattered in her breath and going, she's alive. And be like, oh man, she's gone back to being crazy now. But while they're there, the same Mary and Mary, that's his mother as well, both of there, who are there in their greatest, watching Jesus at his greatest torment. And Jesus is going to meet them at theirs. Here they are at their greatest torment. As the life that they had given to follow Jesus is shattered as he's dead. And he's not going to let that last long. Now go back 2,000 years. Find someone in the Middle East and ask them, what would happen if you made women the first messengers? Exactly. How do you think that's going to play out? Go to most of the Middle East today and ask that. That, that this risen Savior. And I want you to think this through for a minute with me. Because today we're going to put on our thinking caps and see the absurdity of what's going on here. 
if you were resurrected from the dead and you wanted the world to know, what would you do first? Where would you go? Would you hit BBC? Would you show up? I mean, would you hit some kind of satellite and just beam you all over everything? Would you just pop on, you know, would you just kind of do a Facebook post and then do something on YouTube? I mean, what would you do to show everybody? Now, because I'm kind of a natural fighter, my first thoughts are things like, I don't know, show up at the high priest's house, (laughs) you know, knock on Pilate's door. Hey, remember me? You know, I mean, that's kind of where I come from. But I think Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. How amazing that the risen Savior would first go to a group of women who are just torn up because they just wanted to be with Jesus. And I get the idea because his whole drive is about having a relationship with you. Not just showing that he's victorious over someone. Ha ha, I won. Why he would go to them first. Because they were the ones more than anyone that actually seemed to do whatever they could to just be near Jesus. Even if he were still dead, they just wanted to be near him. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be that close, let me just show you. I'm alive. Now, meanwhile, while that's happening, so now these women have encountered Jesus and they're going to go run. And ultimately what we know is they're going to go run and they're going to go talk to these guys. Peter and John are going to run to the tomb then to see what in the world they're talking about. And as they do, what we do read is that John outran Peter. He'll tell us twice in his own gospel. So John says he's right. By the way, I outran Peter. You know, and he wants to make sure you know that. That somewhere in all of that, they're going to have their own encounter as well. But somewhere in the midst of all of this, there's a big problem for those that are trying to stop this Jesus thing. So notice it tells us, by the way, now in our verses, and by the way, for what it's worth, whilst the women have come worshiping, while the guards come whimpering, because it tells us here that now as they were going in verse 11, behold, some of the guard, now some, what happened to the rest of it? Which ones just decided they caught a, you know, they caught a boat to the farthest place they could get? You know, I mean, if you encountered something like that and you were on the other side of that, would you just bail? Or would you own up to it? Well, some of them have to go and give a report. So some of them of the guard came into the city and reported, notice, not to Pilate, not to the Romans, but for the moment to their temporary boss, the chief priests. There's a group of chief priests, and of course the last thing I think they're expecting at this moment is this. And these guys show up there trying to gain the last little shred of dignity left to go and tell these chief priests. And notice it says, they told them all the things that had happened. Did you see that? Now play this out for a minute, okay? What that means is we've got chief priests that are gathered together. It's now past Sabbath, so they're kind of back at business. And as they're kind of doing their thing, these guards show up. They're pasty white, and they're freaked out. And and they're Italians, right? So they're Romans, so they're not going to look pasty white naturally. And they're kind of coming in, and they're just trying to, you know, they're, they're looking like zombies, and they're kind of in shock. And they have to come in there, and they're like, okay, we have to tell you something. Now, walk this through with me, because if we play this out, this becomes absurd here. And then even before we play out the arguments that are going to play here. So here's the issue. So imagine a couple of Roman guards, you know, of however many they come in, they're like, okay, um, we were guarding and it was dark, just like you said. Nothing was happening and we're there. We're completely ready. We're in position. And this glowy dude shows up behind us. And he's kind of ascending. And, and he stood there and he just went, tink, and the stone rolled away. And as that were the case, we just kind of went, and then the next thing I know, I was staring at the ground on the way down. You know, and it's like, that's what they, and, and imagine, what would the chief priest be like hearing this information? 
Now, would there be one chief priest, even one that goes, wow, I better go check that out. But one thing we have found, and please hear me in this, in the politically religious, and I hesitate to say religious, because all religion means is devoted, and I pray we all are very religious, but just devoted to Jesus, not just devoted to a politic and a tradition. But all the way back when Jesus was born, remember, wise men showed up in fulfillment for what it's worth of Genesis 34. But as they show up, they've got, you know, their big entourage and their camels and their spices and all this stuff. And they're like, we're looking for the king. You, you know, we're looking for a king. This star keeps moving. We keep following as it moves. And, and we just, where is the king supposed to be born? And the religious leaders are the ones who gather together. And because they know this, they go, oh, you know what? Yeah, Bethlehem, that's where he's going to be, Bethlehem. But where are they? You never see them in the nativity. It isn't like, okay, let's put out little baby Jesus in the manger. Let's get some wise men. Let's get the shepherds. And then let's get those chief priests who already knew and should have been there going, oh, man, well, where is he? None of them are there. Well, why is that? Can I say this is the danger of what happens when we just become politically religious? Where it's just about a culture and, well, we go to church because we'll just go to church. You know, my, my mama made me go to church. She said, you know, and she had that spoon, and it was like church or the spoon, and the church seemed so much better than the spoon. And like, that's what we came? And what happens is, like, well, I'm there, so I could take my box, so maybe I could get something at the end of it. You know, and it's and somewhere in all of that, if that's what church is about, and that's all it is, well, then what will happen is you'll have all this knowledge, but then it's like, hey, the Lord's doing something, and you're like, well, I have no interest in going. I've already gone to church this week. How horribly tragic. Not only at Jesus' birth, but now at his resurrection, here they are hearing eyewitness testimony of guys who would never tell you something like that. Which one of you wants to admit that you fainted because you saw something supernatural? When you're too level-headed. I mean, Romans, we don't believe that kind of stuff. I mean, imagine that. And here we are facing this. These guys who have to tell us that the toughest, roughest guys that get tattoos basically with a piece of broken glass and some ink they found on the ground, these are the guys that are going to tell you now. It's like, let me tell you what, I don't know, I just fainted like a little girl. You know? And they have to tell this, but then these religious leaders have to look and they're like, now in the world do we do? Imagine that meeting. Why not we're sitting down we're like, oh man, um, how, do we, how do we solve this? Any suggestions? I'm kind of out of suggestions here. Now, is Joseph of Arimathea there? Is Nicodemus there? Is Gamaliel there that we'll, you know, we'll read about in the book of Acts? Is Paul, well, at that point, Saul, is he there? Watching these guys scramble to come up with an answer. And you know how this is. When the Lord does something tr- just phenomenal in your life and you tell someone, they scramble. Inside their head is that same meeting. If they really don't want Jesus, they're going to go, hmm, how do we explain this? How do we explain this? Uh, uh, well, it, and then they come up with something. But that same meaning's happening. But again, the moment you encounter Jesus, you're just going to have to deal with him, not just a bunch of words. I can tell you how he's changed my life and how I've encountered him, like those girls could tell, by the way. But these men have encountered an angel, and it doesn't say anywhere that they saw Jesus kind of walk out of this, but somewhere in all of this, and the question is, well, could the disciples have gone in between in that Sabbath day? If a man was caught walking in the city on the Sabbath day, he would have been killed. Nonetheless, a whole group of guys, that would have caught attention. 
consider that. So now here you have it, where these, these religious leaders go and they go, okay, I think we have an answer. This is what I want you to do. I want you to tell them. Who in the heck is them? Are you going to tell, tell, you know, Pilate? That's probably a bad idea. So the them is going to be the guys that you're going to hang out with in the locker room afterwards while you guys are kind of slipping off your kind of really cool feathery head thing and all that. You know, hey, by the way, here you go, buddy. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you a weird thing happened. I fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. We really blew it. But they said, look, it, we will appease the governor. We'll take care of it. And what that tells us, I just kind of hear it like this, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, is that somewhere in that, these guys are going to be able to say, because if they were for hire and commissioned by the religious leaders, all they have to say is, it was a sufficient job, and then they're not going to be in trouble. So like, well, they did their job just fine. Well, they didn't do their job just fine, did they? But this is where it gets funky. Because what happens now is, is there are these barrages of excuses, and this is the one that they think worked. But I'd like you to consider the fact that when you try to reason away a miracle of God, you wind up in creating bigger miracles. Classic example is when the uh, Israelis went through the Red Sea. Now, obviously, it's a pretty epic and massive thing. As a matter of fact, it's one of those things that if I were a special effects artist, I would really love to do that scene. How cool is that? The water's got to split, and they're just going to walk right through the kind of you know, dry ground on it. Meanwhile, I mean, and of course, the whole thing is a little manic to me because the, you know, there's the, the Pharaoh's army, and they're watching the, the whole water split, and the people walk through, and then they're kind of like, well, if they could do it, we can do it. What? Like, it, like that happens every other day for you? I mean, there's something inside of me that goes, well, I'm not really sure we should follow them into that. Well, consider the fact that there are those who try to be really brilliant, and one of the ways they think they could be smarter than God is by disproving these things. So what they said is, well, it really wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea, as we're all aware of, is really only about six six inches of water. Well, that's not such a big issue. Of course, an earthquake can dry out the ground and we can kind of walk through and it's kind of dry. Well, then you've got another, you've got a bigger miracle because that means all of Pharaoh's army went into the, to six inches of water and drowned in it. Now, either they're leprechauns or they were all doing army crawls, for which, by the way, standing up would have solved the problem. But somewhere in it, now you've got fears on me. Oh, it's taking my ankles. I mean, think that through for a second. And all I'm saying is, is when you try to reason away a miracle, you get another one in the, in the process. In this case, it would be God drowned a whole bunch, uh, drowned an invincible army at the time in water that only could drown Hugo. Anyway, uh, consider this. If we, if we just slow down for a second to think this through, this is what we're reading. We're reading that the best soldiers on the planet of the day all did the one thing they were not allowed to do, which was sleep. Now, we're aware of the fact that if one soldier fell asleep amongst the guard, of any guard, not only would the soldier be killed, not only would all of the guard be killed, but the towns that they came from would be killed, their families and anybody in their neighborhoods. That's pretty serious. As a matter of fact, it was so much the case that if you started getting tired, what a Roman soldier would do to the guy next to him if he was starting to fall asleep is he'd take a torch and kind of stick it underneath that skirt because that, nothing wakes up a man like that. And Jesus uses that metaphor, by the way, in Revelation 16, verse 15, when he says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. 
Because he knew that a watch, if you did your job right, you kept your clothes. But otherwise, once they catch fire, there's no getting them back. So first of all, we have to assume that all of the guys fell asleep. Now that, by the way, is strange enough for a three-hour shift. But then it gets weirder because, well, for them to get Jesus out to steal the body, they had to roll away the stone, the, the disciples, right? So you've got four sleeping guards. And then as the four guards were sleeping, these disciples tiptoed by. How do you roll away a 10-ton stone without somebody waking up? What are the odds that at least one of these guys didn't jump up in all of that? So we have four sleeping guys sleeping hard enough so all of these disciples could come by, roll, right? And then steal Jesus away. But then you still have another problem. And the problem is, if they stole away Jesus' body, that these guys were sleeping so hard that the stone didn't wake them up, how in the world did they know who stole the body? Have you ever thought that through? Well, I was sleeping, but in my sleep I know who did it. How do you know who did it? There's, I mean, you can see, that's a crazy argument. But when people don't want to believe the truth, there is no limit to the craziness they will believe. So let me kind of address those other ones, because we have very little text to address. When you talk about this, first of all, either Jesus died or he didn't. Let's just be honest. By this point, if he came to earth at all, which is clear and evident, he clearly had to die. I mean, otherwise, you've got another miracle, a guy living 2,017 years. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty great miracle as well. So, here's one argument. Birth, by the way, in our own island here. That Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He only swooned. Have you heard this one? That's one of my favorites. You know, somewhere in it, in essence, what happened is Jesus got into a, well, as he was being crucified, he fell into a coma. Now, we're, of course, we're moving the crazy ideas of things like, I don't know, that he was completely scourged in his back that would have caused at least a third of his blood loss. Plus, he was pierced in the side just to be, just to make sure of it. You know, and I'll, let's, just, let's just remove all of those things from it. Let's just overlook those little details. So when a person is being crucified and their arms are pulled taut from the ground and nailed in like this, by the time they come up 10 degrees, the weight on each shoulder is two tons, which means both shoulders are completely pulled out of their sockets by the time that you get up to that spot. As a matter of fact, the classic thing is that the arms would be at least six inches. Remember those six inches, like the water that drowned is the uh, Egyptians? Well, your arms would be at least that much longer on each side because it would ripped out of their sockets. Plus, you have a nail that has gone into both feet. Just kind of reminding you a little detail. So let's just let's play this one out. And again, all you have to do is kind of walk through it for a moment. So you took this same Jesus, and this Jesus who now has a dislocated feet and dislocated arms, and you throw him in a cocoon and a tomb. Somewhere in all of that, you've got our guards, I remind you, who are still guarding. Jesus, who is in a cocoon with dislocated arms and feet, is going to roll really fast into the stone to knock it over. Now, somewhere after the first attempt, I'm kind of getting the idea the guards would have caught wind of it. Kind of went, hmm, what's going on over here? Somewhere, but you can't knock a stone like that that's in a groove that's this deep. You can't knock a stone this way. You have to roll it. 
which means Jesus, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, had super suction. And as he was there with his dislocated feet and arms in his cocoon, he's like, and he rolls the stone away. Then after all of that, he has to go get past those guards. And then as he gets past the guards, he has to roll his way over to where everybody else is to go, hey guys, I'm still alive. That's a greater miracle, in my opinion, than just resurrecting from the dead. That's like a whole bunch of new miracles you're adding. So there's that option. So the disciples stealing, that's kind of a crazy thought, especially when the guards slept to do so. And then you have Jesus swooning. Well, that's kind of a crazy idea too. So the only ones that are left are Jesus really did resurrect or everybody had a mass hallucination. Now, without giving too much even credence to the last one, if you know anything about mass hallucination, what that means is all the people had to see something at once. Now, there have been, quote-unquote, you know, sort of documented events where a bunch of people saw the same thing or thought they saw the same thing, but it has to be all the people at the same time, one event, and that's it. When you take, then, 24 different events in Scripture plus where Jesus is in different places showing up to different people at different times, you have a whole crazy, whole new set of, like, this isn't just mass hallucination. This is like an epidemic of mass hallucinations. It's like whatever it is they started handing out to the disciples went to the women and went to the guards and went to the... That's crazy enough. So there's only one, there's only one, uh, really, I mean, how crazy is it to think that the resurrection is the most reasonable of our options? Because if we really want to stop a risen Jesus here and he's not risen, all you have to do is come up with the body. So, well, that should make sense. Arrest all of the, the guys. So let's just play this out and then I'll go right to our text and we'll finish this up. Consider this. Imagine if it were, maybe, let's just play it out, that there, somehow, the, you know, the, uh, one of the, you know, I don't know, one of the, like the zealot, for instance. No, just the zealot. That, that, that would be, he'd be a good guy for this, right? So you take Simon the zealot, and he goes, and he's, oh, I've got the perfect drug, and we're going to sneak by, and we're going to put it in the drinks that the Roman soldiers are, so they're going to be completely wasted. They'll never get up. They won't get up for days. Right? So then it's the case, and then we're going to, then, okay, now they're so wasted, and they're just an inch away from death. Now we can roll away the stone. No one's going to know. We're going to take the body, and who knows what in the world we're going to do with the body. We're going to hide it. We're going to hide it so nobody can find it. Okay, well, if you were such a guy, first of all, would you record your own failures in Scripture? If this is to make you famous, if you're going to go, well, check it out, we followed the right guy, are you going to record that you denied Jesus thrice, for instance? Or that you deserted him and fled when he was arrested? And you yelled like little girls and you ran away? Would you put that in Scripture? But then, of these 11 guys who had all already had a tendency to bail, to desert, to abandon, how hard before you, do you have to push before one of them finally says, okay, all right, I was just kidding. And how hard do you have to push for that? And yet, listen to this. If I were to take the most trustworthy of all of our historical um, evidences and records for all of these men, this is what I can tell you about these same guys. Matthew, the one who would write this gospel, ministers ultimately in Persia and then goes to Ethiopia. While he was in Ethiopia, by the way, he <clears throat> had the opportunity 
<coughs> excuse me, to stand before the king. The king's name, by the way, was Hertakis. And Hertakis, by the way, had a real problem with him because he would not bend on Jesus and he wouldn't even bend on the morals that were associated with Jesus. Hertakis was so upset about this whole thing, he wound up actually taking Matthew and having him stabbed to death from behind. And all he had to do was denounce Jesus and he would have been fine. Peter, the one who denied Jesus thrice, martyred in Rome in 66 AD by Nero, Caesar Nero, emperor. And Peter, by the way, choose, they, they were going to crucify him anyways, but didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified as his Savior was, asked to be crucified upside down in his place in, 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 instead. Andrew, Peter's brother, went to the, what was called the land of the man-eaters. Does anyone know where the land of the man-eaters is? Who eats men? Russia. I don't know how that works. I don't know. It's been. Anyways, uh, and there was a, basically the whole point was he went there and then he went to Asia Minor, Turkey, and in Greece. But while he was in Greece, uh, the Roman proconsul at the time, by the way, Aegeatus, uh, tried to convince Andrew and all and told him, listen, I'm going to kill you or you're going to forsake this Christianity thing. And then because Andrew would not, he not only crucified him, but he made sure he was as healthy as he could be while crucifying. He lasted two days. And according to the accounts, he actually preached Jesus to every person who walked by while he was hanging on the cross. This is what you do with a lie? James, you remember James and John, the sons of thunder? Sons of thunder, Boanerges. Well, he's the one guy that we know didn't even make it past the book of Acts. In chapter 12, King Herod at the time then stretched out his hand, killed him with the sword. Philip, uh, Powerful ministry for what is worth in northern Africa in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is the west coast of Turkey. Hierapolis, Turkey, by the way, while he was there, the Roman proconsul's wife, had, um, he had a chance to speak with her and she converted to Christianity. She gave her life to Jesus. In retaliation, the Roman proconsul was so upset, he crucified him and then beheaded him just to kind of top that off. Well, you know, or, or remove the top off, I guess. Downing Thomas? Well, this guy, by the way, he was all over the place. He went to Syria, and then he went to India. As a matter of fact, the Marthoma Christians call it from India actually say that they come from Thomas. But apparently, as he was there, he was surrounded by a group of angry Indians. And these are from India, not like, you know, American Indians. And they um, just had to give him a chance to denounce Christ, for which he refused. And he was pierced through with spears by four of their soldiers. Bartholomew, who, by the way, we read very little about. This guy is the one that's a Malik. This, this Bart, this is Bart on tour. Bart goes to India with Thomas and then back to Armenia, Ethiopia, Southern Arabia. But while he's in Armenia, by the way, he, can, he had a chance to speak with the king. His name, by the way, is Polymius. Polymius, the king of Armenia, sits down with him and he goes, do you really believe this? For which then Bartholomew says, I've given my entire life over because this Jesus has not just risen, but he's alive in me. As we sung. For which then, Polymius gives his life to Jesus. Polymius' brother, on the other hand, his name is Astiagus, he gets so upset about the whole situation, he has Bartholomew flayed alive, skinned alive, and then crucified upside down to punish him. For which Bartholomew never recanted a moment, but rather instead sought to constantly encourage Polymius to stay the faith. James, the son of Alphaeus, considered James the lesser for what it's worth. Uh, according to Josephus and Fox's Book of Martyrs, by the reports that he was stoned, and that didn't work, so then they clubbed him to death because the stones weren't working. He was 94 when they did that, by the way. Simon the Zealot, 
refusing, by the way, to sacrifice to the sun god in Pala Jordan, goes to north and the west coast of Africa. And according to, by some tradition, he actually went to England and was crucified there in 74 AD. How weird is that for a thought? Simon the Zealot. Uh, Matthias, the one who replaced Judas Iscariot, by the way, he was burnt to death in Syria. Paul, as you know, was martyred in 66 AD by Emperor Nero. He was beheaded. And the only one, by the way, whoever actually has the martyrdom of a long life is John. Uh, for what's with the one who writes the Gospel of John in Revelation. And God has a purpose in that. John, by the way, is, though, tortured still. He's boiled alive in oil when Domitian goes mental on anybody calling themselves Christian. But he refuses to back down. And so as a result of that, in his 90s, they send him to a work camp on Patmos, Kraken Rock. And it is there that he writes the Gospel of John, so we can be thankful he made it through that. And also he gets the revelation for which he writes to finish our Bible. Now here's the point. You take the same guys who pansied out, if you'll pardon me for saying, pansied out on Jesus at his arrest. How do you take those guys and give them the courage to never back down in the face of ardent torture when they really weren't tortured at all when they fled from Jesus the first time? And it wasn't like they were even together as a band of people so that they were going to encourage each other and say, okay, you guys, we have our pact. Rings and you're not kind of thing. None of that was going on. What we have instead was a group of guys that were so infected by Jesus that nothing was going to stop them. And I ask, have you met Jesus or are you just part of the religion? Because if you're just part of the religion, you'll be like the gals and you won't want to say anything. But if you've encountered Jesus, I've heard, it, you know, I've heard it said the only way to be infected or the only way to be infectious is to be infected. You can't be contagious if you ain't got it. And I want to be infected with Jesus. So these religious leaders, closing it up, look at our verses. These same men who are going to live these lives Religious leaders give them a large sum of money. And I ask, where do you think the large sum of money came from? From people who are giving the money in temple tax to God? Imagine a religious system that's supposed to be honoring God that takes the money and then uses it to shut down the preaching of Jesus. You don't have to think that hard because it's happening all over our country right now. It is amazing how many banners are being waved to silence the gospel that are actually called church led Christian this for the against, you know, Christians for the separation of church and state. The whole thing where the whole point of it is we're just going to get this whole gospel thing. Look at you can have your songs, you can join hands, you can do your little things, wear your irritating t-shirts, just shut up about the name of Jesus and we're going to be cool. That's all the way through the book of Acts as well. But religion didn't save me. Church didn't save me. Jesus saved me. The resurrected conquering, all-victorious Jesus. He saved me. And he walks with me. And he continues to transform me. And he continues to give me a brand new look on life. So verse 15 says they took the money. And they did as they were instructed. Now here's the crazy part. The whole argument is a group of people coalesced decided to propagate a lie for which they wouldn't bend on. That was the argument. And can I say that's actually true? You just have the wrong group. It wasn't the disciples who got together, decided to coalesce on a lie, and then decided they wouldn't bend on it. It was the Romans. It was the chief priests, the leaders of the religion of the day, 
And the guards of the day sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. Nobody bend on this. The only difference is none of them are going to get tortured for it. They've got their money and off they went. And people believed it to that day. Now, maybe that's where you're at. You're a skeptic. And you're just kind of looking and going, I don't know. How does this play out? Well, if you're a genuine skeptic and not a cynic, then you're open to facts. So, then let me just invite you to do this with me. Invite Jesus to make himself real to you. He knows what buttons to push. He knows how to do that. But maybe you're already there. Maybe you realize, well, you know, actually... This, the penny's dropping, and I, I, what do I do? Look at God's a gentleman, and he gives you an invitation, and you just have a choice to make. Like a man pursuing a gal in love with her, wants her to be his wife, he drops the knee, the ring is out, and he says, will you be mine? He's done everything to try to prove his love, his commitment to her, but she still has a choice to make. Now, he could hold a gun at her and say, marry me, but that's really not much of a victory. In the end, you're like, yep. You know, she's literally my ball and chain because I chain her because otherwise she'll run away. Well, that's kind of not a real great wedding or a great marriage. But if you give them a choice and then they say yes, well, then they have an option to say yes out of love. The Bible says that though we are all sinners, God, knowing that sin as a righteous judge should be punished, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to come to earth be tempted in every way, yet never once sinned, so he could be so innocent, so pure, Perfectly so, but he's the only one who qualifies to actually pay for your crimes instead of you. Now that took two things. One, he had to be he had to qualify by being completely pure and innocent, and the second is he had to be willing. And of all the religions, if you were shopping religions, find that in anyone else. First of all, find anyone who's willing to take yours from you, your guilt and your shame and your punishment, and second, find someone that could qualify. Nobody does on either case. Except my Jesus. And when he died on the cross, my bill was paid. So was yours. How do I know that the debt cleared? Because God promised it would be proven by him raising from the dead. Jesus' resurrection says this is an absolute sure deal and it's done. The only thing left now with God on his knee with the ring out, saying, will you be mine? Will you hand me your life and let me do something beautiful with it? Let me take the old person and lay him to rest now and give you a brand new you, a brand new life. And that's the choice you have. Well, that's the choice I'm going to give you as you pray. But if you have said yes to Jesus, I just would like to encourage you today. Beloved, you have the opportunity today to ask God, God, infect me with you in the best of ways that I would be contagious so that I wouldn't just tell people that I saw an empty tomb. I came to church and I saw empty death. What I saw, I saw that death had been gone from it. But rather, I met the one to whom steals death away and conquers it and gives me new life. That's the choice you have today. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you so much for walking us through it. I want to thank you, Lord, for showing us the absurdity of, the, of trying to reason this away in something that sort of appeases for the moment our our lunging intellect but in the end of it all just numbs a pain we have to know that you're real you've created us to have a relationship with you and we have blown it in our own selfish self-aggrandizing self-serving ways and yet 
you still loved us. Even though we're guilty of offending you, you took this step and paid our price. Dying on the cross so that all of my shame and guilt and filth and everyone here and the filth and the shame of this world could all rest on your shoulders as they were torn apart hanging on that cross. And as that price was paid in full, my bill was cleared. But you still give me the dignity of choice. And here in this room, if you're not sure you've ever actually said yes to Jesus, maybe you've been cool with the whole thing, but you know there's a choice required. And if you haven't made that choice, I want to give you that option right now. I'm not going to call you forward and make you stand up, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if this is you and it resonates with your heart at the end, give a resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, in my own merit, I stand before you guilty. My own sin, regret, and shame put me there. But you love me and want me anyways. You so love me that you chose to pay for all of my filth, all of my guilt, to cover all of my shame by sending Jesus to die on the cross where all of the sins of humanity, mine included, were paid. And as he paid for those sins, I was on his heart. And just as you promised on the third day, he rose again. And as he rose again, you offer me a brand new life now. No longer under the tyranny of my own sin and shame, but under the freedom of your lordship. And you give me a choice. And I say yes. With my heart racing, I say yes. I say yes, Jesus, please have me, make me new. Take that old man and lay him to rest and give me a new life now. Take my life and make it beautiful. I lay it in your hands now. So, Father in heaven, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. God, I pray for every believer in here, including those who may have just said yes to you. Pray right now that you would infect us with you, saturate us with you, that we could become contagious. It's not just people who join a, a group or a club or somehow got indoctrinated or pulled into a politic, but rather people who've encountered you so profoundly that our lives will never be the same. Lord, send us out of here with joy and with the wide eyes of those who have encountered you. In Jesus' name. Amen.